no one likes being told what to do. No amens on that one? <laughs> I just told you, that, that, was that me telling you what to do? <laughs> kind of indirectly, I guess. No one likes being told what to do. We often don't like those who exercise authority over us simply because they exercise authority over us. Maybe you've had the experience of, you know, your boss is an okay person, but they're your boss, and so you're kind of like always unhappy with them for some reason. We'd prefer to be left alone so we can just do our own thing. We know we should work hard at work, for example, but we don't like being told we should work hard at work. We're wired to resist. We're wired to resist. Why? Why is this the universal experience of all of us in this room? Well, the Bible teaches that we're all born with a nature, a disposition that prefers to do what we think is best rather than what God thinks is best. To keep our own rules, to make and keep our own rules rather than submit to God's rules, to live without laws rather than come under the law of God. The Bible calls this sin. In fact, in 1 John, later in chapter 3, John says, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. J.I. Packer, in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, defines sin like this. Quote, sin is, in essence, an irrational energy of rebellion against God. A lawless habit of self-willed arrogance, moral and spiritual, expressing itself in egoism of all sorts, end quote. That was so good when I read it this week. I feel like I, I should read it again for you. So listen carefully to Packer define sin. Sin is, in essence, an irrational energy of rebellion against God, a lawless habit of self-willed arrogance, moral and spiritual, expressing itself in egoism of all sorts. In other words, he's saying, deep inside of us, inside of you and me, is a principle, an irrational energy. I love that. It just seems to capture what, you know, that thing inside of you can't find words for. It's just there and it's happening and you hate it, but then you love it and then you hate it and then you love it. It's happening inside of you all the time. Packer says it's an irrational energy. It doesn't make sense. Sin is irrational. He calls it a lawless habit of antagonism toward God. And anyone else who would tell us what to do. We're wired to resist. And we don't like being told what to do because of this irrational energy of rebellion against God. We're wired to resist because of sin. Now, why do we talk about sin? Why do Christians talk about sin? Why does God in the Bible talk about sin so much? Does God just like flexing his moral muscles? Does God enjoy shaming us? Is God just interested in keeping us in our place? Why so much talk about sin? I wonder if you've ever considered that Perhaps God talks so much about sin because His deepest heart is to give us something rather than deny us something. That God's deepest heart is to give us something rather than deny us something. What if God telling us to do certain things and not do certain things is one of the most loving and generous things God could do? What if not sinning is such a big deal because God wants to give us life and keep us from death. Like when I tell my kids, at least we're at least over a thousand times on this one. Don't go in the street. Look both ways. Don't play in the street. I mean, I've said that so many times. 
Why? Because I want them to not die. I want them to live. I want them to play in the yard with me, their father, who wants to own them in all the sports we're playing. I want them to enjoy life in the yard or even in the neighbor's yard across the street as long as they look both ways. It's fine if they cross. But it kills me when they just run across without looking. Why? Am I just flexing my authority, wanting to keep them in their place, deny them something? Or do I want them to have something? What if God is so concerned with sin because He wants to, in His deepest heart, give us something, not deny us something? Friends, maybe you're not yet following Jesus. I don't know where you're at with Jesus this morning. Maybe you're not yet following Him. Maybe you think that Christianity, maybe you've been told even, or you've just assumed that Christianity is about keeping rules and performing rituals. That Christianity is about becoming a better person than you used to be. Maybe, you know, becoming a new you. Well, the Bible certainly contains rules and commands, but... Friends, if that's what you think Christianity is, please hear me now. The essence of Christianity is not rule-keeping, but knowing God, but having a relationship with the God who made you. God made you so that you could know Him and be known by Him. He's after your heart, not your outward moral successes. God wants relationship, not rule-keeping. However, every healthy relationship has boundaries. So the people God enters into relationship with are given commands, and then as God enables His people to keep His commands, this really cool thing happens. Uh, Our assurance, our confidence that we really belong to Him increases. You see, Many of you are here as Christians. You're following Jesus actively and actually following the Lord. But even still, you and I wonder sometimes whether you're really in the faith. You wonder whether you're really a child of God. You wonder whether your relationship with God is really real. Or are you just doing things to look good or feel good or please someone? You and I have Doubts, and these doubts are normal, by the way, and shouldn't be just ignored. They shouldn't make you think you're weird or not spiritual enough or not a good Christian. Doubt is normal, and we all have it. In kindness, one of the things God has done in His Word and in our lives to meet us and help us in these doubts is to help us grow in obedience so that we can grow in our confidence that we are indeed His children. It goes like this. Let me break it down as simply as I can. God saves us in Jesus, and then God helps us grow in obedience to Jesus to increase our confidence that we really belong to Jesus. Let me say that again. God saves us in Jesus, then helps us grow in obedience to Jesus to increase our confidence that we really belong to Jesus. Obedience to God increases our assurance that we belong to God. Obedience increases assurance. And obedience, God's call for obedience, is one of the best things He could give us. I'm going to talk more about that at the end. But this is the main text, excuse me, the main point of the text we're looking at this morning that obedience increases our assurance. This is 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 through 6. If you want to find your way there, 1 John 3 2 3 through 6. In these four verses, we're going to see four things. We're going to see number 1, I'm going to give you the four points if you want to jot them down, then we'll get into them one at a time. Number 1, we're going to see that Obedience reveals relationship, verse 3. Obedience reveals relationship, verse 3. Number 2, we'll see that no obedience reveals no relationship, verse 4. 
No obedience reveals no relationship, verse 4. And then 3, obedience proves our love for God, verse 5. Obedience proves our love for God, verse 5. And fourthly, obedience means living like Jesus lived, verse 6. Obedience means living like Jesus lived. That's where we're going. Obedience reveals relationship. No obedience reveals no relationship. Obedience proves our love for God. And obedience means like living like Jesus lived. And then at the end we're going to close with a few thoughts on obedience. The main point of this text and of this sermon is that our obedience to God increases our assurance that we belong to God. Obedience increases assurance. And that all of this is a beautiful gift. This call to obedience is a beautiful gift from God to us. Number one, our obedience to God reveals that we have a relationship with God. 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, <coughs> excuse me, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Now in chapter 1, we learn that our posture towards sin reveals whether we're in the light or not. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Look at verse 6 in particular. 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Our posture towards sin reveals whether we're in God's light or in the darkness. Then... In the first two verses of chapter 2, we're reminded that God's people do sin. Verse 1 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2-1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, you're like, whew, (laughs) good, that's me. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we're reminded in those first two verses that God's people do sin, but God has made provision for our sin in Christ. Now, in these next few verses of chapter 2, John moves one step further and says that God's people don't just avoid sin and don't just confess sin, but are, on a more positive note, actively trying and seeking to obey God's commands or live lives that look like Jesus' life. Verse 3 begins this little section. In verse 3, John lays out one of the tests that we can use to discern whether we know God. By this, we know. This is a litmus test. By this, this this thing I'm about to say, by this we know that we have come to know Him. This is really really good news. God wants to help you know whether you know Him. That's good news, right? Just leave it to us to figure it out. This is called the moral test. And John's going to come back to this test again and again in the letter. This is just the first time really he brings it up. It's called the moral test. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, how there are also the relational test, and the doctrinal test. First John has these three tests that are meant to help us discern whether we're in the faith, whether we're truly following Christ. None of these tests I said a few weeks ago are meant to be binary. They're not either or. Like, they're not meant to say, hey, either you are obeying God or you're not. Either you are loving people or you're not. Either you do believe the right things or you don't. They're not to be, meant to be either or. If they were meant to be that, we would all fail miserably because none of us obey perfectly love perfectly or even believe perfectly so what's going on here john is giving us these tests moral relational doctrinal in order to help us and help the church discern false teachers and false teaching he's saying the gospel truth real christianity looks like this and if you're doing these things you're you're growing in the truth if you're not then you're not. You're outside of the truth. So here we see the moral test. It's simple. Verse 3 again. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. This is pretty straightforward. If we keep His commandments, we can know that we know Him. We know we know Him if we obey Him. John is, is, is insisting that no religious experience is valid if it doesn't come with a changed life if it doesn't have moral consequences other religions certainly you guys may be thinking about all your mormon friends right now who are super swell people 
probably some of the nicest people you know. Or even friends who are atheists or whatever they are, and they're really upstanding kind of people. It's certainly true that other religions or people with no religion can have a high moral fiber. So this isn't the only test in the letter. This is one of three, moral, relational, doctrinal. But this is the moral test. John is saying that these false teachers who were plaguing these churches he's writing to were claiming to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. Again, chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. John comes back and says, no, that's not possible. It's not possible to say you have fellowship with God and then live however you want. Knowing God, according to John, is not knowing facts about God. It's not recognizing God's work in the world, but knowing Him personally. I've sat in some membership interviews over the years. It's none of you in this room, by the way, okay? This is over the years. I've, I've heard people say things like, I know I'm a Christian because I know God's always been with me because I've seen Him at, at work in this way, in this way, in this way, in this way. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have a saving knowledge of God. Just because you recognize His work. A lot of people recognize God's work in the world and in their lives. John is saying that real knowledge of God is not about knowing facts, recognizing God's work, but rather knowing Him personally. By this we know that we have come to know Him Christianity is about knowing a Him, a Him, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. John is more interested in what this knowledge produces than what it is. His focus here in this text is on the result of this knowledge, namely obedience. We can know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. You may be thinking, well, then no one can really know if they know God because no one keeps God's commandments perfectly. You're like, John, I screwed up this morning. Yesterday, I was a complete jerk all week long. I've been a complete jerk my whole life. I don't know where, where you are. How can anyone know that they know God if this is the standard? Well, John isn't saying you have to obey perfectly to know if you know God. Again, this isn't binary. Either you obey God or you don't. Right? One slip up, you're out. You can never know if you're really His. He's saying that those who strive, keyword, strive to conform their lives to God's commands can know that they belong to God. This striving is the evidence of a real knowing. It won't be a perfect striving, but it will be a present striving. As Packer says again, quote, this, The Christian's life must be one of righteousness as the expression of his repentance and rebirth. That is basic, he says, end quote. So obedience to God is basic Christianity. Those who know God increasingly obey God. I was talking with a church member this week and was reminded of an illustration that I think it's David Pallison uses in one of his books or a lecture or something. You know, I, I hear stuff sometimes. It came from someone else. I don't know where it came from. It's not me. It's one of the best illustrations on the Christian life, though. I think it was Pallison. He says, it's like walking up a staircase with a yo-yo, right? Up and down the yo-yo goes. You guys following me? I'm probably going to butcher this. But you're going up. So the yo-yo might be down, but the down there is further up than it was down there because you're going up a staircase. That's Christianity. That's what a Christian's life looks like. Steadily going up while we go down and up and down and up. This striving is evidence of real knowing. Those who know God increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly obey God. Specifically, John says it's those who keep, quote, His commandments, God's commandments, who can know that they know God. Now what does this mean? What does His commandments mean? Well, there's no hint in 1 John that John is concerned about obedience to the, the Mosaic law. John isn't trying to make these Christians into good Jews. 
He's after something far more profound. And I think chapter 3, verse 23, helps us understand 2, 3. So look at chapter 3, verse 23. This, John says, this is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. So what's the commandment? Believe in Jesus. Love one another. So he summarizes God's commandment. Notice singular. This is his commandment, singular, as believing in Christ, loving other Christians. And this is the essence of what God has commanded or what God wants from his people. That they believe in his son and love his church. This reminds us of what Matt just read for us from the great commandment in Matthew 22. That we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Loving God and loving others is parallel with believing Christ and loving Christians. Obedience, in other words, obedience in these things is evidence that we know God. So what is he saying in chapter 2, verse 3? If we keep his commandments, what are his commandments? Well, they can be summarized like this. Love God with all you got and love other people. Or believe in the Son and love Christians. This is what pleases God. God, obedience in these things is evidence that we know Him, that we believe in His Son and love His Son's people. Obedience in these things reveals that we have real relationship with God because these are the things that God wants, the things that please God. And doing what pleases God reveals that we actually know Him. If we don't know someone, then we wouldn't know what pleases them. But we know what pleases God. So if we do the things that please Him, namely believe in His Son, and love His people, then we, please, then we please Him. So if you claim to know God, you should be doing the things that He commands. And what He commands above all is to love God with our whole being and love others, or believe in the Son and love the Son's people. This starts, of course, by putting your trust in the Son, turning from your sins, embracing the Gospel, Maybe, again, some here today haven't yet come to a place where you've confessed to God that you're a sinner with no hope to save yourselves in and of yourself. And you need to put your faith in Christ. You need to turn away from your sins and embrace Christ as your only hope. You need to recognize that God made you and one day you will talk to Him about your life. And that Unless you're covered with the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, through faith, you will be condemned to hell forever. But if you are in the Son through faith. You will be welcomed into His kingdom forever. So repent and believe the gospel is the most important command we will ever obey. Repent. Turn from yourself and your sin and believe in the Son. Everything else follows from here. So in chapter 2, verse 3, when John says, by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments, then has God commanded us to do lots of things? Yes, of course He has. But the umbrella statement over all of God's commands are loving Him and loving others. Or believing His Son and loving His Son's people. Everything else flows out from there. So it begs the question for brothers and sisters here, if you're a church member, if you're a Christian, do you love the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you believing in the Son? Are you walking by the Spirit? And are you loving your neighbor and loving the Son's people, also known as the church? Obeying God's commands starts right there. Loving God and loving God's people. So that's number one. Obedience reveals relationship. Number two. No obedience reveals no relationship. This is verse four. No obedience to God Reveals no relationship with God. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now this doesn't mean that those who sin are liars who don't know God. It's referring to those who live a lifestyle of disobedience to God's commands. The verb there, does not keep. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. That verb is in the 
present tense, so it's referring to a continuous action. John is not saying, whoever says I know him, but sins one time is a liar. He's saying, whoever says I know him, but continues sinning all the time without a care in the world about it, is a liar and the truth is not in him. John obviously knows that we'll sin. He's already said that in verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What he's saying in verse 4 is that those who know God won't be characterized by sin or disobedience to God's commands. John learned this principle from his teacher. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 7, 21. Jesus is saying, God's people do God's will. Not perfectly, all the time, every second of every day, but increasingly, God's people are the ones who do God's will. And then John comes along and says, if you say you know God, but you don't regularly and increasingly actively do God's will, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Those who teach or think that you can truly know God without growing in obedience to God are liars and the truth is not in them. John Stott again says, quote, A person's words must be tested by his works. A person's words must be tested by by his works. This is one reason why our church takes church membership so seriously. We believe that the church is made up of those who've believed the gospel, been baptized as believers, and give evidence of being born again by the Holy Spirit. That there's discernible fruit, evidences of grace, evidence that God indeed is changing our lives. The church isn't made up of those who, like Jesus, but live however they want. The church is made up of those who are actually and actively following Jesus. How do we know who they are? Well, they're the ones who are growing in obedience to God. So membership doesn't make anyone a Christian, but it does help us know who is a Christian and who isn't. This is also why our church practices church discipline. If at any time any one of our members or any one of our elders start living lives that contradict the Bible, the process of church discipline begins. It's a process led by the elders, but confirmed by the church, according to Matthew 18. It's not for every little sin, but for sins that are obvious and, key word here, unrepentant. So look, cursing at your friend won't get you kicked out of the church. You're like, whew, <laughs> But repeatedly lying and gossiping or stealing, looking at pornography or whatever else sin you want to name, without any desire to change, without any understanding that that's wrong, will begin a process of church discipline. And I know this feels harsh. No one likes being told what to do or how to live. But... If the Bible's right, and if a Christian is someone who increasingly obeys God, then to come along someone and say, hey, you're not increasingly obeying God. In fact, you're doing the opposite. Therefore, you're in danger. That's not judgmentalism. That's love. Like if you see your friend headed down a path that ends with a cliff, you're going to gently tell them to please turn around. Not because you hate them, but because you love them. So the members of the church are responsible. We are responsible to encourage one another toward obedience and pray for one another and warn one another and help one another follow Jesus more and more every day. No obedience to God reveals no relationship to God. That's verse 4. Number 3, verse 5. Obedience proves our love for God. Verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Our obedience proves our love for God. John broadens his commands to his word. Notice verse 
3 and 4, he uses language of command or commandments. Now verse 5, he says, word, keeps his word. He's broadening the scope. He's referring to God's will in general. This verse is saying that obeying God's word and all that it says is evidence that we love God. True love for God is revealed in obedience. Packer's just absolutely right. This is basic Christianity. What we are often prone to think is that our love for God is based on how we feel. Maybe when we're doing our quiet times, you know, do we feel something? Or we're in worship, do we feel something? And by the way, I'm all about that, man. I want my affections to be stirred up every morning and every Sunday morning. I long for that. I love that. It's a huge part of our faith. But to say, well, if I felt something, then therefore I'm saved. Or let's, let's take it another direction. Say, well, I'm serving in the church. I've got gifts. I can teach. I can lead. I can serve. I'm generous. I do all this stuff. Therefore, I'm, I'm good with God. And you're, you're basing your relationship with God based on your spiritual gifts or using your spiritual gifts to serve the church. Which is not bad, but is it enough? No, John is trying to say to us repeatedly, true love for God is revealed in obedience. John is basically saying, true love for God is way less glamorous than you probably realize. It's not based on mystical experience, sentimental language, using gifts to serve the church. Again, listen to Packer. All through the New Testament, when God's work in human lives is spoken of, the ethical has priority over the charismatic. End quote. The Bible repeatedly tells us that character is more important than gifts or knowledge. Character is more important than gifts or knowledge. I love how Mark Dever says, if you read a bunch of books on theology, but you're not willing to go pick up a widow and bring her to church, you may not be a Christian. Do you believe that? And you can fill in the blank. If you, if you serve faithfully in your local church, you know, but you won't get out of your comfort zone to serve another Christian in a way that you wouldn't prefer, if you love reading and studying, if you love singing, but you don't love talking to other Christians, being with other Christians, it begs the question whether your knowledge of God is real knowledge. Real knowledge of God is rooted in obedience, not experience, not serving, not gifts. John says the love of God is perfected. That word just means completed for those who obey His word. Love of God, there may be better translated love for God, as the NIV says, love for God is truly made complete. Chapter 5, verse 3 helps us a little bit on this. Chapter 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. This is the love of God. How do you know whether you love God? Are you keeping His commandments? Love for God is revealed by obeying God. Jesus Himself says this several times in John's Gospel. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. The idea is that our love for God completes its work when we obey God's commands. Again, John Stott says it best. The proof of love is loyalty. The proof of love is loyalty. In other words, we don't honor someone if we betray them. We don't cherish someone if we ignore them. We don't love someone if we disregard their words. Our love for God is proven by obedience, not experience. The proof of love is loyalty. So you might ask yourself this morning, brothers and sisters, I am not the Holy Spirit. I don't know all that's going on in your life. But you might ask yourself, where am I not loyal to my King? Where is my love for Jesus lacking? Where am I not honoring Him? cherishing Him, loving Him well with 
my words, my actions, my thoughts, my attitudes, my possessions, my time, my education, my job, my family, my kids, my spouse. Where am I not loving God well? The proof of love is loyalty. True love for God is revealed in obedience. In Him, whoever keeps His word, in that person, truly the love of God is perfected. Obedience proves our love for God. Number four, finally. Verse six, obedience means living like Jesus lived. Obedience means living like Jesus lived. Verse six, whoever says, actually this starts up in the the end of verse five. By this we may know that we are in him. So here's the test again, the moral test said in a slightly different way. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says he abides in him, Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. (coughs) Abide means lives. So whoever lives in Christ ought to walk. And walk is another word. It's a, a word picture for living. The way you walk is the way you live, generally used in the New Testament. So the verse really says this. If you live in Christ, then you will live like Christ. Abiding in Him means walking like Him. We can know that we live in Christ if we live like Christ. Our call is to conform not just to the commands of Christ, but also the conduct of Christ, the life of Christ, the disposition of Christ. Becoming more like Jesus is actually why God saved us. Paul says in Romans 8 that God predestined His people to be conformed to the image of His Son. So God intends to show off the beauty of Jesus through His people's conformity to Jesus. Those who live in God live like Jesus. So this begs the question, how did Jesus live? And I thought about making this like a huge part of the sermon. I'm just going to say a few things. If you want more on this topic, start reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did Jesus live? Read the Gospels. Let me just summarize, I hope, a few of the main things we learned about Him in those Gospels. How did Jesus live? He was full of grace and truth. He loved sinners. He On the best word here, I don't want to say not love because I think he did love them. He did not enjoy the attitudes of the self-righteous. His harshest words were for those who thought they were something in and of themselves. He moved toward people most people moved away from. Can I give you an example on how the Lord convicted me on this this week? Matt, you asked me about the bags out there. There was a homeless lady at our church this week. And I was in the library looking for books, you know, being super studious. And I heard a rustling outside, right outside these doors. And I looked out there, and there was a pallet, a blanket, and a pillow, and a bag. And I was like, oh, there's a human out there. But I didn't see the human. So I went to the door, and she was kind of around the corner. She was just standing over to the side. And I immediately shrunk back. And I was like, oh, no, what do I do? And I had the thought, well, I could go back to my office, get back to work, you know, put my nose back in my books, or, and I think this was the Holy Spirit, I I hope, or I could go talk to her, right? And this is not to boast, because my flesh wanted to go back to my books. Books are safe. Books are safe. I had no idea what I was going to get into if I went out there. So I just grabbed some water bottles and went out there, talked to her for like five minutes, tried to help in some ways. Saw her the next day, same thing. But the Lord convicted me, showed me in my heart, I would prefer to move away from people that I'm not comfortable with. But Jesus actually did the exact opposite. Oh, you're a leper? Let me touch you. (laughs) You know? 
You're a, you're a prostitute. You've slept with all these guys. Okay, all right, let's have a conversation. You're a tax collector. Can I come to your house for dinner? I'm inviting myself over. He literally moved toward people, most of us, me, me, usually move away from. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus wasn't afraid to upset cultural or religious norms for the sake of the hurting and the lost. Jesus loved and knew and memorized God's word. Jesus spent time in private prayer. Jesus took time to rest. Jesus spoke the truth and lived a life that backed it up. Jesus suffered with patience and courage. Jesus fought against evil with the word of God. And on and on we could go. Jesus' life can be summarized as a life that loved God and loved others. Jesus lived to please God and bless others. It wasn't flashy or popular. In fact, Jesus' life got him killed. But his life honored God and forever changed the world and has forever changed many of our lives. So what is God's will for your life, college student, grad student, young 20-something, 30-something? What does God want for you? Whoever says he abides in him, walk in the way he walked. Walk like Jesus walked. Live like Jesus lived. You're like, well, I don't know. I, this guy, this girl, this relationship, this job, I don't know what to do. I don't know what you should do either. Let's talk about it. But what I do know is that if you live in God, you should be living like Christ, re- increasingly Repeatedly, day after day, looking more and more like Him. I know you're wondering, like, John, that, or you're probably thinking or maybe asking, like, you, okay, that's easy for you to say, you know, you're married, you're settled, all the big questions are answered. Like, like being married and having kids is easy. <laughs> you, you're asking, well, what about all the things, man? I got all these questions, all these, all these conundrums, all these fears, all this uncertainty. I don't know what to do. Well, a couple things. God gave us a conscience and God gave us a church to help us. To help us be more like Jesus. So if you're unsure about whether, we, whether, whether you should or should not do something, ask, would Jesus be pleased with this? Would this help me walk more like Him? And then ask a trusted brother or sister what they think. You're like, I could never bring this up. or I don't want to bother them with this. Okay, well then keep struggling with it by yourself. Or you could go to the church, to brothers and sisters who maybe have been there before and offer help and counsel and at the very least prayer and encouragement. We need each other's help because we often don't see the places in our lives that don't look like Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And remember the people who walked with Jesus they walked with other people who were walking with Jesus. It wasn't a solo journey. So, we've seen that our obedience reveals our relationship, that no obedience reveals no relationship, that obedience proves our love for God, and that obedience means living like Jesus lived. Obedience is meant to increase our assurance. By this we know, by this we know that we are in Him. We can know we belong to God if we obey God and live like Jesus. I want to close now, though, with three thoughts on obedience to hopefully clear up any potential confusion in your minds. First of all, we don't obey God in order to be loved by God. We don't obey God in order to be loved by God, but because we are loved by God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of obedience, so that no one may boast. 
In other words, God accepts us based on Jesus' obedience, not our obedience. We cannot obey our way into God's family. We cannot disobey our way out of God's family. Salvation is by grace, through faith, not through obedience. As Tim Keller said, quote, The central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably His heart is set on us. We don't obey God in order to be loved by God, but because we are loved by God. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, then you will obey me. So love starts, obedience follows. Secondly, not all obedience is created equal. Not all obedience is created equal. Obeying God is always a good idea, but many times, if we're honest, our motivations for obedience are more about us than about God. We often want to look good and impress people, so we obey to create an image of godliness rather than out of a love for God. Now, I would say that I would rather you obey than not obey, even if your motives aren't all the way right. Because I'm not sure that our motives will ever be all the way right. However, it's a good idea to think carefully and pray often for your motives in your obedience. That we would want to obey out of love for God, not a love for our appearance and our image. And this leads to a third truth. Without the Holy Spirit, true obedience is not possible. Without the Holy Spirit, true obedience is not possible. Paul says we all are being transformed from one degree of glory to another for this, this transformation, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to be truly transformed. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay titled Three Kinds of Men, where he argues that there are three kinds of people in the world. The first kind of person, he says, only live for themselves and they just do whatever they want without any restraints all the time. The second kind of person knows that there's a code of, conduct, a code of conduct outside of themselves, whether it's their conscience, maybe the Bible, or their parents, and they try to conform their lives and follow that external code of conduct. But as they do, they, they live in this tension between that external, external code and their natural desires, and they go back and forth. They, they know they should do these things, but they really want to do these things. And Lewis compares that kind of person or that kind of life to paying a tax. He says people in the second category try to pay their moral taxes faithfully, hoping that there's something left over to spend on themselves. But then he says there's a third kind of person. He says, quote, The third class is of those who can say like St. Paul that for them to live is Christ." The old egotistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs. It is theirs. End quote. Lewis's point is that it's too simplistic to say people are obedient or disobedient. Because we can be obedient in a tax-paying kind of way. Pay our pledges to God. When what we really want is to do what we want to do. What he's saying is that Christianity is about more than simply obeying God. It's not less than that. By this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. It's not less than obedience. But it's more. Christianity is more than simply obeying God. It's about enjoying God. Lewis again, the price of Christ is something, in a way, much easier than moral effort. It is to want Him. It is to want Him. And that's the question for us. Do we want Him? We can keep God's rules without His Spirit. You know people who keep God's rules without the Spirit. 
And like, well, well, they don't have faith, so it's sin. Okay, get it. They're moral people doing moral things without the Holy Spirit. We also, as I've already said, for reasons usually just beneath the surface, obey God. Not out of love for God, but out of a desire to look a certain way. So we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to help us enjoy obeying God. To obey Him as a result of love for Him. So friends, consider this morning, consider why are you obeying God? And let the Spirit purify your motives. Ask Him to purify your motives. As the Spirit helps us live more and more like Jesus. And here's the key. Want to live more and more like Jesus. Because we love Him. Because we want Him. Not because we want to look good for Him. But because of Him. To live is Christ, Paul said. As we do that, as we follow Jesus... As we live more and more like Him, our confidence that we belong to Him will increase. We'll see, again, as Tim Keller said so well and so often, that we're more sinful than we could ever dare imagine and more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope at the same time. At the same time. More sinful, more accepted than we could ever dare imagine at the same time. This call to obedience is a gift of grace because God wants us to know that we're His and He wants to give us life. Sin brings death. So when God calls us out of sin and into obedience, He's calling us out of death and into life with Him. Let me close by putting it this way. No one likes being told what to do, but the call to obey God and to enjoy obeying God is an invitation for us to be resurrected as we move out of the death of sin and into the life of obedience. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is so clear that we must obey you if we claim to truly know you. And its clarity is scary because we all struggle to obey you. We all struggle to obey you. So Father, please send your spirit to help us, to, to be a mirror for us, to show us and reveal to us the things we need to see in our lives that aren't pleasing to you, the ways we're walking that that don't reflect the way Jesus walked. Help us to see these things, own these things, confess these things, turn from these things, and help us, above all, help us to enjoy obeying you. Help us to love obeying you. Change our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.